Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Some people are on the fence, they think it's all over. It is now. On June 1st, 1967, the Beatles released what is considered by many the greatest album of all time. It was an album of firsts. It featured the first gatefold sleeve, the first time lyrics had ever appeared on a record cover, and it was the first album the band would release following their decision to stop touring. It was the most expensive sleeve design in record distribution history, featuring a host of celebrities past and present, and arguably, it can be considered the first album by a musical artist to be discussed in terms of art. Within hours of its release, it went multi-platinum and topped the charts around the world. The album spent 27 weeks at the top of the UK album chart and 15 weeks at number one in the USA. The album is regarded by some as an early concept album that advanced the use of extended form in popular music while continuing the artistic maturity seen on the Beatles' previous two albums, Rubber Soul and Revolver. One of the first art rock LPs, it aided the development of progressive rock and is credited with marking the beginning of the album era. The Beatles heralded in what would become known as the Summer of Love with a soundtrack that featured songs influenced by music hall, circus, western and Indian music. We were asked to turn on, tune in and drop out in a year that proved to be a remarkable watershed in the social history of Western youth. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the making of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was more than just a collection of songs. It was more than just a concept. As big and as influential as the album was, and still is, 
It was essentially just a small piece in the complicated jigsaw puzzle that is the 1960s. And for a brief time during this period, it would prove to be part of a way of life for many. A way of life that had changed so dramatically since the Second World War. After the shackles were unlocked after 1945, a further sense of liberation now existed. Teenagers finally had a voice, and maybe now it may start to be heard. In Britain, the 60s saw the end of national service, the introduction of the pill, and the dawn of sexual liberation. Britain would finally disassemble its empire as former colonies sought independence, and the young, who were determined to test the worn-out establishment rules of behaviour, would begin to contest the time-honoured conventions with a high degree of hope in their own future. In the USA, John F. Kennedy would say in 1960, And we stand today on the edge of a new frontier. The frontier of the 1960s. The frontier of unknown opportunities and perils. The frontier of unfilled hope and unfilled threats. Woodrow Wilson's new freedom promised our nation a new political and economic framework. Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal promised security and succor to those in need. But the new frontier of which I speak is not a set of promises. It is a set of challenges. It sums up not what I intend to offer to the American people, but what I intend to ask of them. Jump forward four years to August the 28th, 1964. At the Delmonico Hotel in New York, a meeting of minds would take place that would change the course of popular music forever. Here, the journalist Al Aronowitz introduced the Beatles to Bob Dylan. In turn, Bob Dylan introduced the Beatles to marijuana. Of course, the Fab Four were aware of pop. They'd smoked it while they were in Hamburg, but it was here in New York as Dylan, Aronowitz and the Beatles began to get stoned that they realised that they were now truly thinking for the first time. Mal Evans, the Beatles' roadie, had to follow Paul McCartney around the hotel that afternoon armed with a notepad as Paul was convinced that a major artistic revelation would arise at any moment. The early Beatle records, although in many cases were deceptively intricate, were initially designed to appeal to the younger, predominantly female fan base. By now, John Lennon was convinced that these tunes were not deep enough emotionally, and he had this intense desire to express himself and his emotions rather than merely project himself objectively into the narrative of a song. So 1965 would see a maturity in the work of the Beatles with the release of Rubber Soul. For the first time, there would truly be a genuine variety of influences from folk to soul and the introduction of the sitar. (laughs) 
also introduced in 1965, well, to Britain at least, was lysergic acid diethylamide. Better known, of course, as LSD. The noted British researcher into psychedelic drugs, Michael Hollingshead, brought half a gram into the country this year. Enough for 5,000 trips. Timothy Leary had invited Hollingshead to teach at Harvard after being introduced to the drug by him. From his flat in Belgravia, Hollingshead began to turn on the London in-crowd in what would become known as the World Psychedelic Centre. LSD was not criminalised until the following summer of 1966, and devotees of the drug included Keith Richards, Donovan, Eric Clapton, Allen Ginsberg and of course Paul McCartney. Ken Kesey, the author of One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest, would hold acid test happenings. The Red Dog Experience would take place in Virginia City, Nevada, an all-night psychedelic experience at the Red Dog Saloon, a refurbished Wild West bar where people wore turn-of-the-century clothes, combining a traditional folk look with a developing psychedelic rock sound and aesthetic. And the opening of the psychedelic shop in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco in January 1966 reflected a cultural shift in the city, as a huge influx of young kids came looking for an alternative to that on offer in the parental home. The centre of English beat culture was the Better Bookstore. Influenced by San Francisco's City Lights Bookstore, it featured a gallery, cinema stages for talks and readings, and a creative atmosphere that welcomed new art forms such as assemblage, performance art and radical poetry. Here, Allen Ginsberg would captivate audiences with readings of his poetry. As well as these centres for cultural development, the club scene began to reflect the rapid changes that were taking place. Clubs were prime meeting places in the emerging hippie and swinging London scene. Britain's first psychedelic club, UFO, opened in Tottenham Court Road, along with the Middle Earth in Covent Garden and the Scottish St James on Mason's Yard, notable as the venue for Jimi Hendrix's first UK solo gig in September 1966. Shops and boutiques began to cater to the new tastes and attitudes of a growing hippie culture. Outlets such as Hung On You and Granny Takes A Trip were not only at the vanguard of fashion, but also provided meeting places and distribution centres for the latest news from the underground, in much the same way as did bookshops like Indica and Compendium. Pop and op art were also at the centre of attention in London in the lead-up to the Summer of Love and the launch of Sgt Pepper in June 1967. Pop art sampled popular culture for its subject matter while op art examined the phenomena of optics and perception, 
creating work that confused and excited the eye. Op artists were also drawn to the idea of virtual movement through kinetic art. Pop art offered cultural currency in both the US, its spiritual home, and Britain at the time. American pop art might be better described as art that sampled mass communication and shopping culture. The roots of British pop art meanwhile contained a domestic narrative bound in the popular culture of the working class, some of which is represented in the paintings of Peter Blake, work that adopted the culture of music hall entertainment with artists such as George Formby. German graphic designer Heinz Edelman, creator of the Beatles animated film Yellow Submarine, and the Australian artist and cartoonist Martin Sharp arrived in London from Australia after an overland trek through Asia via Kathmandu with author Richard Neville. They, along with fellow Australian Jim Anderson, soon set up a London version of their Australian counterculture magazine Oz, with the first issue published in February 1967, providing a full-colour psychedelic commentary on the London scene. In telling the Sergeant Pepper's story, it's probably important just to focus a while on 1966. Ask any football fan in the UK about 1966, and of course they will recall that it was the summer that the England team, led by Bobby Moore, would win the World Cup final on home ground. Ask any film fan about what movies were released that year, and they will no doubt tell you about The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, Blow Up, and of course Alfie, starring Michael Caine. In the news, the first vertical jump jet, the Harrier, was introduced, along with a hovercraft service across the English Channel. Miniskirts were all in fashion, and the Cultural Revolution began in China. In the USA, a subway strike in New York brought the city to a standstill, and at the University of Texas, Charles Whitman killed 14 people and injured 31, and became known as the Texas Tower Sniper. And in Wales, in the mining village of Aberfan, an entire generation was wiped out in the space of five minutes, and 116 children and 28 adults were killed, and the coal tip above the village slid down the mountain and engulfed a farm, several houses and the local school. By now, there were half a million US troops in Vietnam, and throughout the year, thousands of protesters attempt to have their say across America and the rest of the world. In November, heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali declared himself a conscientious objector and refused to go to war. Beatles paid their final live gig at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. Physically exhausted and frustrated at not being able to hear themselves play, along with the death threats and the bigger-than-Jesus scandal, 
meant that the Fab Four had had enough. Time for a break, if at all possible. John Lennon would use some of this free time to fly to Spain to appear in a movie, How I Won the War. Here, he would be joined for a while by Ringo. George and Patty Harrison would travel to India. In November, Paul McCartney flew out to Africa for a safari holiday with Mal Evans, the Beatles' trusted and long-time assistant. In Kenya, they were joined by McCartney's girlfriend, Jane Asher, and the three of them visited the Ambasali Park at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro and stayed at the Treetops Hotel in the Abadari National Park. They spent their final night on the 18th of November at the YMCA in Nairobi before flying back to London. It was during this flight that McCartney had the idea for Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. McCartney would recall, We were fed up with being the Beatles. We really hated that fucking four little mop-top boys approach. We were not boys, we were men. It was all gone, all that boy shit, all that screaming we didn't want anymore. Plus, now we got turned on a pot and thought of ourselves as artists rather than just performers. There was now more to it. Not only had John and I been writing, George had been writing. We'd been in films, John had written books. So it was natural that we should become artists. Then suddenly on the plane I got this idea. I thought, let's not be ourselves. Let's develop alter egos so we're not having to project an image which we know. It will be much more free. What would really be interesting would be to actually take on the personas of this different band. We could say, how would somebody else sing this? He might approach it a bit more sarcastically perhaps. So I had this idea of giving the Beatles alter egos simply to get a different approach. Then, when John came up to the microphone, or I did, it wouldn't be John or Paul singing. It would be members of this band. It would be a freeing element. I thought we can run this philosophy through the whole album with this alter ego band. It won't be us making all that sound. It won't be the Beatles. It'll be this other band. So we'll be able to lose our identities in this. Eventually the frustration and the anger that had manifested throughout the touring years began to ease off. Ringo would remark to the press during the recording sessions in December 66. Yeah. But if you fed up of being sort of Beatles, the thing is a Beatlemania. We can't do a tour like we've been doing all these years because because our music's progressed, we've used more instruments. It'd be soft us going on stage, the four of us, and trying to do the records we've made with orchestras and you know bands and things. So we'd have to, if we went on stage, we'd have to have a whole line of men behind us. Are you getting bored of being the Beatles after all this time? No. I'm having a great time. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. Long well, time since you. I've seen you. Thank you very much, Ringo. That's all right, thank you. Are you going to work now? Well, I'll we'll see what they're up to. I think it may be tea time with any luck. Yeah. Bye. Of course, the songs would not be recorded in the order that the tracks would finally appear on the album. Recording would commence in late 1966, with the album finally being released the following summer. 
The late 1966 sessions began in November. The first song was Strawberry Fields Forever, which was not included on the album, but released as a double A side with Penny Lane. With the band fully rested, and the nightmare that was the touring years now behind them, there seemed to be a more profound ambience to them. Strawberry Fields was written by John and was about the old Salvation Army home for kids that he used to live next door to in Liverpool. The band related it to youth, golden summers and fields of strawberries and were fully in tune with what John was trying to say. Paul would start the track with an introduction on a Mellotron. He didn't make a big thing of this at the time as they were certain that it wouldn't get past the musicians' union. George and John would of course be on guitar and Ringo on drums. The second track was John's first lead vocal, recorded with the tape running fast so that it would play back at a lower pitch, with George adding a slide guitar. The Mellotron featured flute samples which were 11 seconds of tape that could be played on each key and then rewound. Added to this on track 3 were double track vocals by John during the first chorus and the third verse, and then harmony vocals by John, George and Paul on track 4. Immediately you realise that this was going to be something far more different to what we were used to. Yes, but it's all wrong That is, I think I disagree Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields Nothing is real Nothing to get hung about Strawberry Fields forever 
Penny Lane itself was not finished until early January, and the decision was made to release both tracks as a double A-sided single. Without an album as yet, and no more tours to promote the single, the Beatles travelled to Knoll Park in Sevenoaks in Kent and to Stratford in London to record two promotional films for the single. With director Peter Goldman and producer Tony Bramwell at the helm, they acted out scenes where they leapt from trees, rode on horseback, and ate lunch al fresco. And when edited together with some of the film running backwards, it provided the ultimate selling tool for the single. And of course, this was in the days where the pop video had not even yet been thought of. It was during a break in the filming that John Lennon bought a circus poster dating from 1843 in an antique shop. The poster, which advertised the circus in Rochdale, subsequently provided the inspiration for being for the benefit of Mr Kite. Many would consider this the finest single release of their career. Producer George Martin would later express deep regret that they were not included on the Pepper album. He said that the only reason that they were not included was the fact that they'd been released as a single, and foolishly there was this idea that they were trying to give the record buying public value for money.
Following the nightmare tour of the Far East and the Bigger Than Jesus scandal, the Beatles manager Brian Epstein was desperate to regain popularity. He asked George Martin for something special, and he told Brian that he had three tracks, two of which were the best things the boys had recorded so far. Looking back, he wished that they considered possibly splitting them as two single releases, with When I'm 64 as the B-side to one of them. To rub salt in the wounds, the single failed to reach the number one spot in the UK. It stayed on the chart for 11 weeks, but could only reach the number two position, having been held off the top spot by Engelbert Humperdinck with Release Me. This was the first time one of their singles had failed to hit the top spot since Love Me Do in 1962. It's thought that its failure to knock Humperdinck from the top was down to the fact that many chart compilers were counting the double A side as two individual releases, where in reality it actually outsold Release Me by two to one. In between and after recording these two tracks, Beatles would continue to record not only songs that would eventually appear on Sgt Pepper, but some that would find their way onto the Magical Mystery Tour LP. More on these individual tracks in a short while. The Beatles would take a short break from recording on the 30th of March 1967, and in doing so would create one of the most iconic album covers of all time. Just before a late night recording session, the band made their way to Michael Cooper's photographic studio just off the King's Road. During the preceding eight days, artist Peter Blake and his wife Jan Hayworth had meticulously put together the soon-to-be-famous collage that would feature a wealth of famous faces alive and dead. The band's original list of people they wanted to include totaled about 30, Peter Blake had taken the list and using it worked on Paul McCartney's original idea of staging a presentation featuring a mayor and a corporation with a floral clock and a selection of famous faces on the wall behind the Beatles. Further names were added and some removed. John Lennon's choice of Hitler and Jesus were left out and Sir Joseph Lockwood, the then head of EMI, vetoed the use of Gandhi, fearing problems having the sleeve printed in India. Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, would often host lavish parties at his house at 24 Chapel Street in London, and it was here, on Friday the 19th of May 1967, that the best remembered of all his gatherings took place. Around a dozen carefully selected broadcasters and journalists were invited for the press launch of the album just before its release to the public. Amongst the photographers that evening was Linda Eastman, who had met her future husband Paul McCartney only four days earlier.
The following day, BBC disc jockey Kenny Everett gave the official preview of the album on the radio show Where It's At, broadcast on the BBC Light programme from 4pm. Remember, of course, that Radio 1 would not start broadcasting for another four months or so. The show was hosted by Chris Denning, but featured a two-part segment that was pre-recorded by Kenny Everett, which featured pre-recorded interviews with John, Paul and Ringo, as well as extracts from every song on the album, apart from one. The final track, A Day in the Life, had been banned by the BBC on the grounds that it promoted a permissive attitude to drug-taking. In a letter from the BBC's Director of Sound Broadcasting, Frank Gillard, to EMI Chief Sir Joseph Lockwood, dated 23rd of May, he said, I never thought the day would come when we would have to put a ban on an EMI record, but sadly that's what's happened over this track. We have listened to it over and over again with great care, and we cannot avoid coming to the conclusion that the words I'd love to turn you on, followed by that mounting montage of sound, could have a rather sinister meaning. The recording may have been made in innocence and good faith, but we must take account of the interpretation that many young people would inevitably put upon it. Turned on is a phrase which can be used in many different circumstances, but it is currently much in vogue in the jargon of the drug addicts. We do not feel that we can take the responsibility of appearing to favour or encourage those unfortunate habits, and that is why we shall not be playing the recording in any of our programmes, radio or television. I expect we shall meet with some embarrassment over this decision, which has already been noted by the press. We will do our best not to appear to be criticising your people, but as you will realise, we do find ourselves in a very difficult position. I thought you'd like to know why we have, most reluctantly, taken this decision. Paul McCartney immediately hit back, telling reporters, The BBC have misinterpreted the song. It's nothing to do with drug-taking, it was only about a dream. John Lennon added, The laugh is that Paul and I wrote this song from a headline in a newspaper. It's about a crash and its victim. How can anyone read drugs into it is beyond me. Everyone seems to be falling overboard to see the word drug in the most innocent of phrases. Finally, on the 1st of June 1967, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was released in the UK with its US release the day after, and it was the first Beatles album to be released with identical track listings in both countries. As I mentioned earlier, the tracks were not recorded and mixed in the order that they finally appear on the LP, but here's a rundown of the tracks in the order that they appear on the album. Don't like that. <coughs> I think it'll probably be another day singing it. Yeah, I just I heard know. it then, that was yeah. nice. Yeah, and what you can do with the bits where you can't get it because <coughs> you haven't got enough breath, you can just stop. Just take over, yeah. Sergeant Pepper was recorded using four-track equipment. Eight-track tape recorders were available in the USA but didn't make their way over to London commercial studios until later in the year. A technique known as reduction mixing was used extensively on the album, which basically means that one to four tracks from one recorder are mixed and dubbed down onto a master four-track machine. In effect, this gave the Abbey Road engineers a virtual multi-track studio. The album opens, of course, with the title track, starting with the combined sounds of a pit orchestra warming up and an audience waiting for a concert to begin. It's almost as if we are listening to a live performance.
We're finally introduced to Paul's vision of an alter ego for the band. It's a song that combines distorted electric guitars along with a brass band in an early example of rock fusion. The stereo mix highlights the lead vocal in the right speaker during the verses and in the left during the chorus and the middle eight. And for the first time in a Beatles session, Paul's bass was recorded by a method known as direct injection, straight into the recording desk bypassing the use of an amplifier. Recording and mixing of this opening track took place in Studio 2 at the AMI Studios in Abbey Road on the 1st and the 2nd of February 1967. The second track, however, was not recorded until nearly two months later at the end of March. Originally entitled Badfinger Boogie, it would feature Ringo on lead vocals, whose voice will be given artificial double tracking. It was always intended to follow on from the title track, and recording began with the Billy Shears line. For this track, John would play Ringo's drums, and George Martin would appear on the organ. Cheer of the crowd that you hear at the beginning was recorded by Martin during the Beatles performance at the Hollywood Bowl. Despite widespread suspicion that the title of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds contained a hidden reference to LSD, John Lennon famously maintained that it was derived from a drawing by his four-year-old son Julian. Paul McCartney confirmed the existence of the drawing and said that although the title's apparent drug reference was unintentional, the lyrics were purposefully written for a psychedelic song. It was recorded on the 1st and 2nd of March 1967 with the distinctive introduction on the Lowry organ played by Paul and it includes John on maracas 
and the drone of an Indian tambura. Everyone smiles as you drift past the flowers that grow so incredibly. Most of the tracks were recorded at different speeds to make them sound faster and higher pitched on playback, with only Paul's bass and George's lead guitar being recorded at a normal rate. This, combined with the imagery of the lyrics, recreates an imaginative psychedelic experience. Perhaps the liveliest track on the album was recorded on the 9th and 10th of March 1967. Getting, getting Better has more of a rock feel to it compared to the rest of the album's psychedelic sound. Surprising really, when you discover that during one of the track's various re-recording sessions, John Lennon mistakenly dropped acid. Around this time, John would carry a small ornately decorated pillbox in which were a variety of different stimulants. John would usually take uppers to keep him alert during the long nighttime recording sessions. That evening, he'd taken the wrong pill by mistake. A very large dose of LSD, which resulted in him having to be led up to the roof of the Abbey Road Studios by Paul to get some much needed fresh air to recover. Although they occasionally smoked cannabis during recording sessions, the Beatles never intentionally took acid while working. Eventually, unable to continue working, Paul McCartney and Mal Evans drove John to McCartney's home a short distance from the EMR studios. Upon their arrival, McCartney decided to keep his bandmate company by also taking acid. It was McCartney's second trip and his first with John. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in And stops my mind from wandering where it will go Fixing a hole is notable as it was the Beatles' first EMI recording session to take place in a British studio other than Abbey Road. The studios that day were all booked so the group ended up at the Regent Sound Studio in Tottenham Court Road. 
featuring George Martin on harpsichord. Recording began on the 9th of February 1967. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins Silently closing her bedroom door Leaving the note that She's Leaving Home, recorded in March, left a bitter taste for George Martin, who would recall how an impatient move by Paul McCartney during these sessions would still hurt him many years later. During the Sgt Pepper sessions, Martin was still obligated to work with some of his other artists. One day, Paul rang him and insisted that George come round the following day, book an orchestra and write the score for the song. George Martin was already committed to a recording session with Cilla Black that afternoon. And, unbeknownst to George Martin, instead of waiting, Paul got in Mike Leander to score the song which he then presented to George Martin the next day. It was a move that deeply hurt George Martin, who thought that it was important that he be involved in everything, particularly the scoring and the orchestrations. George Martin admitted that the score still held up years later, but it was the only score that was ever done by anyone else during all his time with the Beatles. She breaks down and cries to her husband, Daddy, our baby's gone. Why would she treat us so thoughtlessly? The end of March saw the ambitious recording of what will be the final track of Side One. Being for the Benefit of Mr Kite was written by John and the lyrics were adapted from the circus poster he'd bought during the filming of the promotional film for Strawberry Fields Forever. Featuring organs, glockenspiels, harmonicas and most notably the mellotron randomly recreating the sound of swirling steam organs, its use of Edwardian imagery closed the first side of the album in a marvellous thematic link to the LP's opening number.
Side 2 opens with Within You Without You. It was written by George Harrison after the decision to abandon his composition Only a Northern Song, recorded earlier in the sessions. The song features sitars, tablars, dilrubas and tamburas, all played by Harrison and members of the Asian music circle that were based in Finchley. None of the other members of the Beatles appeared on the track, although Beatles assistant Neil Aspinall did join in during some of the recording. The track ends with a burst of laughter that some listeners interpreted as a mockery of the song. Harrison would explain it was used as a release after five minutes of sad music and was keeping with the concept of hearing the audience that is listening to the Sgt Pepper show. George Martin would use this moment of levity as the perfect segue into what he described as the jokey track of the album, When I'm 64. When I'm 64 was one of the earliest tracks to be recorded in the Pepper Sessions, way back in the December of 1966, and as mentioned earlier, it could almost have become a B-side for Penny Lane or Strawberry Fields. McCartney had always had a love for music hall, and this is reflected in the song through the use of clarinets and Ringo's use of brushes on the drums. Very speeding was used on the track, which raised the music's pitch by a semitone, which in a way appears to make McCartney's voice sound a little younger. Cymbals were recorded and played backwards, as well as the inclusion of bongos and tambourines, again aided by the ever-faithful roadie, Mal Evans. The recording for Lovely Rita took place at Abbey Road towards the end of February 1967. During one of these sessions the band were joined by Tony Hicks of the Hollies and David Crosby, then a member of the Birds. It was reported in Beat Monthly, whose reporter was also present, that Crosby assisted with the vocals, but if you listen carefully to the final version of the song he can't be heard. One thing you can hear though is the marvellous backing vocals and effects. John led Paul and George as they sang, hummed, screamed, sighed and moaned, as well as blowing for a comb and toilet paper, all of which was eventually mixed with heavy tape echo. Mal Evans was sent to collect the paper from the Abbey Road loo. Stamped with the words property of EMI, the paper was threaded into hair combs and blown, giving that kasoo-like effect.
In March, the band began recording Good Morning, Good Morning. Inspired by a TV commercial for Kellogg's Cornflakes, it featured John on lead vocals, harmonising with himself during parts of the song. Backing vocals by John and Paul were added, which included the song's title being sung in German at one point. And added to the mix was John's idea to include a wild variety of animal sounds. Starting with the sound of a cockerel, we then hear the twittering birds, followed by a meowing cat, dogs barking, horses neighing, sheep bleating, the roar of tigers, an elephant trumpeting, a fox being chased by a hunt, with some sheep and some cows added in for good luck, as well as a pig grunting and a hen clucking. All of the sounds were lifted directly from the Abbey Road Tape Library. Seamlessly, at the end of the track, George Martin spliced the sound of a chicken clucking to overlap with the guitar being tuned in the next, making a seamless transition between Good Morning, Good Morning and the reprise of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the reprise, serves as a bookend for the album and a segue to its finale. The hard-rocking song was written after the Beatles' assistant Neil Aspinall suggested that since Sgt Pepper opened the album, the fictional band should make an appearance near the end. The reprise omits the brass section from the title track and features a faster tempo. On the Sgt Pepper album, the Beatles wished for there to be no gaps or reels between the songs. As well as this, they wished to have two crossfades from one song to another. These occurred between the title track, and with a little help from my friends, and from Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band reprise, Into A Day In The Life. A Day In The Life had been recorded earlier in the year, back in January, and as we've heard earlier, would prove to be the sticking point for the BBC. As the last chord of the reprise plays, we can hear an acoustic guitar strumming offbeat quavers, leading into four verses, the bridge, two unpredictable orchestral crescendos, and an interposed middle section part written and sung by Paul McCartney.
40-piece orchestra was hired and instructed to start as quietly as possible before ending in an almost lung-bursting piece of turmoil. A crowd of people turned away But I just had to look first crescendo bridges the third verse and middle part leading into the dream sequence of the bridge. Also present was Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Marianne Faithful, Donovan and Mike Nesmith of the Monkees. The orchestral sections were also filmed. They were intended to be broadcast as a TV special at some point about the making of the album. All the musicians were wearing perfect evening dress but some were sporting red noses, party hats or gorilla paw gloves. It provided an almost harrowing, psychedelic, yet perfect end to the album. Well, almost the end. Booming piano chord at the end of the track was produced by recording John, Ringo, Paul and Mal Evans simultaneously sounding an E major chord on three separate pianos amplified by George Martin on a harmonium. And yet, this was still not the end of the album. (music) 
Back in the days when discs were played at 78 RPM, it wasn't too uncommon for the run-out groove at the centre of the record to be used in one way or another. Harry Moss, who eventually cut the album, was asked by George Martin if something similar could be achieved for Sgt Pepper. He replied, It's going to be bloody awkward, George, but I'll give it a go. And so, on the 21st of April 1967, pretty much everybody present in the studio gathered round to record the run-on spiral for the album, which equated to about two seconds of sound. The Beatles stood around two microphones, muttering, singing snippets of songs and yelling for what seemed like hours. The rest of the staff stood round them joining in for what turned out to be a triple session, three three-hour sessions, which ended around four o'clock in the morning. During this time, everyone was being plied with refreshment by Mal Evans, which basically consisted of cases of Coca-Cola and bottles of scotch. At one point, Ringo was so out of it, he collapsed, but was deftly caught by Evans, who immediately lowered him into a nearby chair where he went unnoticed for the rest of the night. A loop was created from the tape of the muttering and was mixed. Just before this sound, a 15 kHz high-frequency tone can be heard. Well, it can if you're a dog, and the entire result is sounds of backwards laughter and random gibberish pressed into the LP's concentric run-out groove, which loops back into itself endlessly on any record player not equipped with an automatic needle return. About the only distinct vocal that can be picked out is John saying, Been so high, followed by Paul with, Never could be any other way. And so, with Revolver and Rubber Soul, the Beatles had begun to make a great leap forward. Managing to reach a previously unheard level of sophistication and daring experimentation, Sgt Pepper managed to refine that breakthrough with a unique and seemingly unrelated combination of psychedelia, art song, classical music, rock and roll and music hall, sometimes all combined into just one song. Looking back only four years before, it's incredible to think that Please Please Me, the Beatles' first album, was recorded in just one day. It was a case of necessity, as they'd already recorded two singles plus the B-sides. An album was required, and so ten more songs were recorded in less than 24 hours. No other musicians present, and just the inclusion of an overdubbed piano added later by George Martin. The album cover? Simple. Just take a photo of the boys at the EMI studios where they just happen to be. Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is considered by many to be the Beatles' master work, but to some it signalled the beginning of the death of rock and roll. But one thing is certain, no other album is as historically important. After its release the mould was truly broken. Bands were free to make their own rules now when anything seemed possible. But from now on, they will be standing in the sergeant's shadow and riding on his legacy.
brings us to the end of this first series of the Rainbow Valley podcast. Thanks to everyone that has sent in kind wishes, comments and feedback. We'll be back in September with a new series featuring the stories of the people and the events that shaped one of the most remarkable decades in history. Series 2 will feature Matt Munro, The Great Train Robbery, Dusty Springfield and the birth of James Bond on the big screen amongst other stories. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast or take a look at the website rainbowvalley.libsyn.com or subscribe to the show at iTunes. Thoughts and feedback can be sent via email to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Pause production. Try and make it.
album here. Okay. Paris Goings. This time you get in the middle of the song. <laughs> I had to laugh myself, you know. Wild, wild, smackle, iced water. My guitar still seems to go in and out like it's like the lead's wrong. I did a free girl one then, one of them where you don't know what you do. All right, let's go. A bit louder for the beginning then. That'll be nice, George. Can you hear me? you like, you know, feel it. Just in case. 